Well, uh, glad to be with you all this morning. Uh, for those of you all that know, uh, Kellum and Raven Thomas got married last night uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. So there was a few of us from the uh, church that were out there. So uh, caught a flight back this morning to be here with you all. So let's pray um, and we'll jump right into God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, thankful for your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for all of your word, especially the clean pages of our Bible that we don't uh, see often. We pray that you would use your word uh, to remind us that, Lord, there's nothing but perfection in you, Father, and all your perfections are equal. There aren't certain perfections that are better than the rest of them, Father, so would you remind us uh, to praise you for the things that we're tempted to apologize for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I love movies, but more than that, um, I think I love certain actors, right? I, I, I love guys like, uh, you know, like Denzel or Jamie Foxx. Not for those same reasons. Uh, <laughs> but I love guys like Denzel and Jamie Foxx who just have, like, range, Right? These are types of guys where it's like they could do, you know, comedy. He could be a, you know, gangster. He could be a villain. He could be a, you know, cop with a good compass. Jamie Foxx, right? He's done Ray, right? He can do drama. He's funny. All of that, right? You, you can't typecast them. What I love about IMDb is you can go online and you can look at the uh, filmography of, like, all of these guys, and you can just go back through, and as you see all the things that they start in, uh, you just sit back and you're amazed at how diverse they are, all they have to offer. Um, unlike guys like Morris Chestnut, right? So, you know, no shade to him. He makes a lot of money, great actor. But you can typecast him. You know if he's going to be in a movie, he's going to be like some successful guy that's, you know, lost the love of his life. and he's, So he plays the yeah, same role in every movie. And you go on the filmography, like online, and you see like, oh, this is actually the exact same role 12 times. Um, I say all of that to say uh, I think that when we come to God, especially for those of us that have spent time in the church and have grown up, uh, we tend to typecast God, right? So there's certain things that we know about God. There's certain uh, things that we've read in the scriptures, but we constantly go back to the same things that we've read that we know of God. So we know that he's a God of love. We know he's uh, patient. We know that he's kind. Uh, but I think that there's certain things about his character and nature that are important that you and I have missed out because we haven't studied his full filmography, right? As God has written the Bible, uh, God writes it, and every page of this is meant to give us a fuller picture of who it is um, that he is. And if we disregard any of what he said here, then we miss out on an aspect of his character and his nature. Uh, so for the next four weeks, we're basically going to spend our time uh, on what I like to call the clean pages of your Bible. Um, it's the pages that 
we really don't go to that one, right? There's things that are marked. Psalms 23 is marked up. Obadiah is clean. Um, the advantage that we're going to have here is in the next four weeks, all of these chapters or all, uh, all of these books are one chapter long, right? So it's like, you know, if you try to read it outside on a windy day, um, and you look up and come back, you're no longer going to be in the book because it's going to blow over, right? If the pages of your Bible are stuck together, you're going to flip right past it. Uh, the advantage of, of these books is as we do it all in one fell swoop, we really get a sense of how we're supposed to read the Bible, right? That we don't want to get lost in the details of what takes place here in the book. We want to see, all right, what's the point? And the point is going to be abundantly clear because it's one sermon uh, for one book. And as we do that, we get to a book like Obadiah, and we start to see that these books uh, are actually missing puzzle pieces that address very pertinent things that go on in our day and age, in our day right now. All of God's word, God speaks. There is not a word that God has said that is not absolutely relevant to life right here and now. And I can think of no other book that is more relevant to the world that we live in right now than Obadiah. So here are two things that I want to take just to show you how all this works. Um, there's things that our world is vocal about and things that our world is silent about. Um, so I think right now in our day and age, people are no more vocal about anything than oppression, injustice. So you talk about systemic racism, white privilege, injustices, inequalities, sexual harassment in Hollywood, right? People are just starting to come out and said, this took place a long time ago, but I felt like I didn't have a voice because the people in power, they wouldn't have done anything. You see a lot of people that are oppressed and feel like there's no recourse, that they have no hope. So everybody spends all of their time talking about the oppression that goes on. That's what our world talks about a whole lot. Here's what our world and even Christians are silent about. God's wrath. When was the last time that you heard a sermon, not a part, but a whole sermon on God's wrath? that God is an angry judge who will punish evil and he's not going to apologize for it and it's not something that you and I should apologize for at all. Probably haven't heard that one much. What if I told you um, that these two things are connected? That comfort for people that are oppressed is actually found in an acknowledgement of God's wrath. That God is a God that's wrathful, that God is a God that has not forgotten or overlooked them, that God is not a God that has something to lose and so won't call out somebody in power because he'll lose his seat. In the absence of speaking about God's wrath and a God that will judge and will set things right one day, what we find is it's actually the precursor 
to you and I speaking about our wrath and how mad we are and the things that we're going to do and the things that we hope to do. And so you get a whole bunch of people, especially Christians in this day and age, that are supposed to present a model of how we engage in an unjust world or an unjust world and provide a sense of hope. But you got a bunch of people that are mad, angry, frustrated, and bitter and not really bringing about any type of solution. And everybody feels as if, well, we just need more information. We need to read a new book. We need to go to another seminar. We, we just have to learn more and more and more. I would like to propose to you, maybe we just need to go to the clean pages of our Bible. So with that, I would like to introduce you to the book of Obadiah. So turn with me to Obadiah. Um, it's after Amos and before Jonah. Uh, if you turn too fast, you're going to miss it because it's just a page long. Uh, if you're using the Bibles that we have right here, it's on page 505. And I'm going to set a little background as we go. Obadiah, um, this is, uh, we don't know a whole lot about him or who he is because the Bible really doesn't set a background or talk about him. Uh, but we do know a little bit about the sequences of what took place, the setting in which this book was written. Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and then they were led back. And so you have a remnant of folks that are back in the land that they left from, and although they're technically free, um, they're frustrated. They're oppressed. Edom, who is their cousin, so you go back in the Bible and you see um, Esau, Jacob. Y'all remember those two? Israel are the descendants of Jacob. Edom is the descendants of Esau. And so what takes place is God looks at them and says, y'all are cousins, take care of one another. Israel got beat up and they look over at Edom and what took place was Edom sold them out. So here they are technically free and back in their land, but frustrated because the very people that should have helped them didn't help them, sold them out, and they're fine while they're struggling. So they sit back, and not only do they resent the people that sold them out, but they start to resent the very God that let that took place. And they get to a place where they feel like, can I really trust God? Can I take him at his word? Are his promises still good? And so this book is one that's written to people that find themselves starting to lick their wounds um, to come in and to say, you can trust God. God is still good. That like Dr. King says, that the arc of the moral universe does in fact bend towards justice. So that's how this book starts. Uh, and the main point, the one thing that you and I are going to see here is this. God never overlooks his oppressed people. God never overlooks his oppressed people. Those of us that are God's people will often find ourselves in a place where we are facing oppression, but you and I have to remember that we're never forgotten. Look, look here in Chapter 1, it starts here and it says this, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God has said about 
Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us go to war against her. So here's what takes place. Israel's mad because Edom didn't come to help them. They sold them out. And so what we have is this book. It's a short book, not because the things that God is going to say is not important. It's a short book because God has decided to act. And he says, I don't need you to set up a time for us to sit down and have this talk back and forth. This is one way thing. I'm really not going to need much time. Have you ever been fired from a job and you know that it's coming and your boss says, hey, you know, we got to set up a, a time for you to talk. And so you look and say, oh, well, I'm free in about two more weeks. Um, and he says, oh, no, no, this really isn't going to take long. Just come here. Let's talk really quick. This is what God's saying right here. This is why this book is so short, because God has decided. Verse one, it says, this is what the Lord God has said. So as God comes in, right, uh, I, I, I taught math for three years, and uh, after about the first year, my kids started getting really cool with me, and so I would come into a class, and they would call me by my first name, John, um, and I'd have to step back and say, no, 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 wait, wait, that's Mr. John, right? We're not cool like that. Mr. John, I'm an, an authority. God starts off here, and he says, yo, yo. This is what the Lord God says. This is Mr. God. This is an authoritative message. Look, we have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us go to war. God starts off and God says, I've already shipped the package and there's nobody that can stop it. It's not going to be returned. We're not going to bargain. We're not going to border. God never overlooks his oppressed people. And the very, the way that this text starts out is it tells us that an injustice, do you know what God does? He intervenes. God steps in. Yeah, I had uh, friends that went out of town to watch the Falcons play a few weeks ago. And they said, uh, as they sat, uh, as the Falcons were playing the Patriots, that this one guy was a heckler. And he started to heckle and just say all of these obscene things, right? It was awful stuff. Um, and nobody said anything. And then after the game, they came up and said, hey, I'm so sorry that that guy said all that. I know how it feels to be talked down to. I'm sorry. And they stepped step back and said, oh, yeah, I don't need you to identify with me. Um, I, I need you to intervene. You should have done something. And if you're not going to do something, then at least tell me what you are going to do to the guy. As this nation here is just frustrated at the fact that they've been oppressed and nobody's done anything, God says, listen to the word that I'm saying about them. God intervenes and look at, look at how this starts. And I just want to read to you verses 3 to 9, and we're going to talk about this. And I just want you to see that that when God is intent on intervening and showing his wrath, this is not something he's apologizing for. Verse 3. Your arrogant heart has deceived you. You who live in clefts of the rock, in your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle, 
and make your nest among the stars. Even from there, I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, wouldn't they leave some grapes? How Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. Will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Temen, your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by the slaughter. Here's what I want us to see. As God intervenes, as God is intent on punishing wickedness, two things that he brings out. One, you can't hide from it. And two, God's not going to hold back. You can't hide. God's not going to hold back. Verse 3 and 4 goes into great lengths, and it says, this is a group of folks who um, he says, y'all are privileged. So he speaks out and says, y'all have every worldly advantage, right? You live in the, the clefts of the rock. This was a group of folks who actually made their homes in these rocks that were up there. So they had the high ground. They could see everyone coming. And God says, as you make your your house is there in the cliffs of the rock. You soar like an eagle. You make your nest in the stars. This is a group of folks that were born into every privilege. And here's what God does. God doesn't condemn the fact that they were born into privilege. That's a word for the day and age that we live in right now because I think especially in the midst of all of these Race talks. I mean, if you're get white in here, I'm sure you've heard the term white privilege, and you've had folks that have used that and make you feel guilty because you have that. We can't control where we're born. God doesn't condemn the fact that some of us have a privilege that certain folks don't. But here's what God does condemn. Pride. So what God says is this. Yo, y'all were born and you had this privilege. Edom had it. But their hearts started to believe that they were better than the people that they had a better situation there. God says this, your arrogant heart has deceived you. Where they lived was a reflection of their heart. That our hearts, because of the sin that has come into the world, our hearts are sick. It's as if our hearts have an autoimmune disease. And what that is, it's the type of a disease. It's a sickness that won't kill you, but it'll make you prone to be infected by more sickness. That's what our hearts are like. Our hearts are corrupted, and they're easily corruptible. And so if you're in here and you have any type of privilege or power or anything like that, that's not something to feel guilty for, but it is something to guard against because everybody that has any type of privilege, it's easy for our hearts to get corrupted by it. And so God looks down and God says, I'm condemning the pride of your heart. Why? Because 
they felt like they were safe. This is what pride does. This is why pride is so deceptive. It makes you and I think that we're safe when we're really not. So the question that I have here is this. Where do you put your trust in? What is it that makes you feel safe? Maybe there's some of you in here and the thing that you fear more than anything else is rejection. And so what you do is you put your trust in beauty. And so you spend all your time trying to make yourself beautiful and, and uh, uh, appealing and attractive because you feel safe when somebody else comes and accepts you for what you have. And all that does, regardless of how accepted and beautiful you feel, that does absolutely nothing when it comes to the way that God sees you. Whatever protection you feel from beauty or for relationships or prestige or anything else, not just that we have, but things that we chase after, those things, regardless of how they make us feel, don't say anything about how you and I relate to God. And the more that we have of those things, the easier it is to be deceived. And so God comes here, and the first thing that he tells this group here is that when God is intent on showing his wrath to people that are deserving, you can't hide from it. There's nowhere that you can go to try to take shelter from God's wrath is like trying to escape trying to escape a tornado in a cardboard box. Run and hide as much as you want to, but you can't hide. But this God doesn't just say that this group can't hide behind the privilege of them. God goes Further, and what he says is that he's not going to hold back. Uh, when I was a kid and my dad used to spank me, uh, there'd be times where he would say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, lies. Um, <laughs> but then, like, you know, my dad was real strong, uh, but he never hit me with the full force of his strength. Why? Because if he did, he'd, he'd crush me. He'd kill me. But what God says here, verse 5, if thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged would you be? Look, wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, wouldn't they leave you some grapes? God talks to them and says, all right, all right look, any thief that comes in and steals, uh, right, they don't take like everything in your home, right? Like it's not like you come home one day and somebody broke in. And everything is gone, like walls, paper clips, dirty laundry. Like, there's still some things that are left. God says, yo, though everybody else works like that, when the wrath of God comes, God says, that's not going to be what I do. God's not going to hold back. Verse 6, how Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. Look at this as he talks about this nation. Everyone that has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. All those that are at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. Verse 5 talks about their economies going to decline. Verse 6 and 7, their foreign relations are done. Verse 8 and 9, it says their wise men, their, their counselors, their armies. God says he's going to bring a complete collapse on this nation, on this group of folks, does this sound like somebody that's 
apologetic, saying, this is going to hurt me more than I hurt you. Not at all. This is a God that's not vindictive, but this is a God that is, in fact, vengeful. That he does have this wrath. And you say, man, God's really going to get at them. Why is he going to do that? Verse 10, God accuses. You will be covered with shame and destroyed forever. Why? Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. See, we may sit back and read this and say, man, God's wrath sounds terrible, but good thing, I'm not a violent person. I'm not prideful. I'm rather filled with humility. So we think that in some way that we're safe from this, but listen, pride doesn't work like that. Pride is not out on the street corner with a sign saying, I'm pride. Pride is sneaky. Look at how God defines the injustice that they did. Verse 11, God says, you were proud, filled with violence. He goes on and says this, on the day you stood aloof, withdrawn, indifferent, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Here's the point that he's trying to bring up. Um, Indifference to injustice is actually injustice. Indifference to injustice is actually injustice, and it leads to further injustice. Indifference is pride because it looks at somebody that's being oppressed, and it says, I have something better to do. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook trying to work for my own prestige. And it says, I have something more valuable to protect than your life and your dignity, and it's my life and it's mine. God says, indifference to injustice is in fact injustice. Indifference is not some cold that you and I have that'll take care of itself if we just let time go on. Indifference is a cancer that it grows. It starts off small, but it grows and it grows and it grows until you find yourself in bed with the very people that were causing the oppression in, in the first place. How many of us can raise our hands and say, I've never been indifferent? Look here at verse 12, how it plays out. It starts with just gloating. I'm glad it's not me. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. Do you see how it progresses? It just starts with the inward gloating and it moves out to outwardly mocking. Verse 13, gloating moves to greed. Do not enter my people's city gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you. Do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster and do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Edom went from gloating to finding themselves in the very city gates that Israel was being taken out of and pillaging the rest of the stuff that they had left. 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives. 
and do not hand over their survivors in the day of their distress. This indifference grows, and it's not just gloating, it's not just greed, but they actually find themselves participating and making sure that all of them are are gone, working on the side of the oppressor. Edmund Burke says this, that the only thing that it takes for evil to prosper in this world is for good men to do absolutely nothing. Indifference to injustice is actually injustice. And it's something that God will judge. Before we go on, I just want to say a quick word to those of us that may be in here that may have tender hearts and may already be doing all that we can with what's in front of us, but you feel weighed down by this because you know there's so much injustice in the world, there's so much that I don't know of, am I going to be held responsible for all that? Based on this text, I think what comes out here is that, you know, Injustice is not the same thing as ignorance, right? Uh, God is specifically calling to account an injustice that was right in front of their face and they did absolutely nothing about it. This is not every injustice that goes on in the world. So I do want to commend those that are part of a church, those that are part of our body that do spend their time trying to address the things that are right in front of their face. Grateful for the people that have uprooted their lives to move in a context. Grateful for guys like Wes and Mike and Marcus and the rest of the crew that spend their time mentoring young guys that are right in front of them. Thank you for folks like Asia who wants to spearhead and make sure that people that don't have food to eat because of a whole host of injustices that go on in our world have that. So this is not a condemnation saying that we aren't involved in every injustice. This is one for those that are right in front of our faces. And I think what we get in the first half of this is God intervenes in injustice, and that is a good thing. We don't apologize for God's wrath, for God's anger, because it's something that God himself doesn't apologize for. For us to apologize for the wrath of God, for us not to talk about it, to remove it, is to actually take away the very way that God intends to comfort people that find themselves oppressed. The fuel behind the nonviolence of the civil rights movement was a group of folks who knew that one day God was going to set things right so they didn't have to with their fists. To apologize for the wrath of God is actually to rob people of their dignity. Because when you and I say that God's wrath is something we really don't talk about, it's a part of his character that we wish that, that we could hide, that what that's saying is that God is not gonna punish the very people that have oppressed people made in his image. It's to remove the dignity that God has placed in folks that he wants to be seen in the way that he righteously punishes evil. To apologize for the wrath of God, to not talk about it like it's a good thing, is to remove a perfection from God himself. Indifference 
to injustice is not goodness at all. It's a moral blemish. For somebody to look at something that's just right and true and to look at somebody else that's being moved out of their house so that somebody else can profit and to have no beef with it and to say it's all good is not something praiseworthy. It's an imperfection. And God is perfect, and none of the perfections of God are more perfect than any other ones. So it's not like God has an A-list of perfections, love, mercy, peace, and a B-list, right? Wrath, judgment, mercy. There is no goodness that is not filled with justice. And so in the same way that we don't want to apologize for God's wrath, for God's intervention in to injustice. Here's one thing that you and I don't want to do. Um, we don't want to let ourselves offer the hook for our apathy and indifference, which is easy to do. It's easy for you and I to sit back and to look at all the oppression and the frustrating things that go on in the world and to feel as if there's too much to do so we can't do anything. So here's a quick way that you and I don't let ourselves off of the hook. As we find ourselves face to face with any act of injustice or oppression, uh, we don't just scroll past it on our timeline so that it's out of sight, out of mind. What we do is we sit back and ask God this question, Lord, what would you have me to do about this? God, what would you have me to do about this? And it's not saying that our involvement is going to be the same at all times, but asking that one question guards us from feeling as if we never have to be involved. And sometimes the answer is so obvious about what we need to do that we spend time and we should pray for courage. Sometimes uh, the answer is so obvious that our trepidation in asking God what we should do about it is an indicator that there's something in our hearts that's prideful, that longs for our safety and security more than being reflections of him in the world that he's placed us. God never overlooks his oppressed people. God will intervene when it comes to his judgment. You can't hide and God's not going to hold back. Verse 15 and 16 is the hinge verse of this whole book, and it says this. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. Basically, that's just God's way of saying this. You are going to reap what you sow. We all are. God never gives anybody more than they deserve in the way of justice. Uh, but God is going to give us what we deserve. And with this nation, God takes a specific account of what he's going to do to Edom. And look here in verse 15, he says this, for the day of the Lord is near uh, against all nations. 
Edom is just a test case about what God will do to all of us. So in case we looked at this and says, what does what God did to a nation long ago have to do with us? Oh, this is just the test case. God's words are like coupons that never expire. The same thing that he did here, it's good. And when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, it talks about this one day where God is going to come and he's going to make things right and his judgment is final and the first step towards this judgment is giving out to everybody what it is that they deserve. It's good, it's glorious, and it affirms the dignity of everybody that's created in God's image. It's something that we praise. It's something that we invite and call out for. But we have to be reminded that in inviting and calling out for God's just judgment, we're actually inviting our very condemnation. None of us have been free from the pride that's outlined here. None of us have been free from indifference that exists. And so if God comes in and punishes in his rightful and his justful wrath, everybody that's wronged somebody else, then what we quickly find out is that everybody's wronged somebody else. And so in his justice, all the nations have to get what they deserve. It's final. God's not going to take it back. God intervenes. But here's the thing that we praise. Here's the thing that we're grateful for, that our good God never overlooks his oppressed people, which means this, God intervenes, but this great God also delivers. You and I have an enemy of our soul, one that corrupted the very hearts of our first parents that infected us with this disease, this sinful disease that we have in our heart that'll take God's good gifts and run to those things to to put our trust in. And as sure as God is going to extend his justice, not just towards those of us that have done wrong, he's going to extend his justice once and for all to the enemies of our soul. And this is what we praise God for. Look here at verse 17. It says this, but there will be a deliverance in Mount Zion and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire and the house of Joseph a burning flame, but the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survival will remain of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Here's what I love. God's words of judgment are in fact final. He's not going to take those back. But judgment is not God's final words. This text ends off and it tells us God will judge on the day of the Lord. This is what we want. We want God to come and make things right. But if God makes things right, what you and I come to grips with is that Ephesians 2 is true. That by nature, we're we're children of wrath. We're the people that God should destroy. And if God doesn't speak a word of deliverance, then All 
hope is lost. But he does speak this word. And not, look, not just against this nation at this time. But this is the message of the whole Bible. The message of the Bible is this. God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. Mount Zion, you go back there and this is the place where God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and tells him, I have not forgotten about the oppression of my people. I'm going to use you to deliver them. Moses does. And what takes place is you see God delivering a nation. But even though they're set free from their physical bondage, they're still spiritually enslaved. They don't love God like they should. The reason why they're in exile in the first place is because they've disobeyed God. What we need is more than just God to set things right in in this earth that we live in. What we need is a God that can put a depth to our eternal problem. And this is what Christ does. This is what I love about Jesus and the whole Bible, that we only see the fulfillment of a text as we see it, as it relates to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was a better brother to us than Edom was to Israel. Edom gloated over the destruction of their brothers. Jesus comes down and and grieves with us, lives with us. Edom was indifferent to people that were on their way to disaster. Jesus comes in with compassion and takes on burdens that weren't his own. Edom greedily pillaged this nation. Jesus comes in and freely gives life and all of himself. Edom betrayed Israel to a group of people that came after to hurt them. Jesus sees people on their way to their rightful judge and he substitutes himself and although he did a better work than Edom Jesus suffered a fate much worse than them look here at verse verse four right it 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 says this God says though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars even from there I will bring you down this is the Lord's declaration God said to Edom I'm going to violently snatch you from your place in the stars to bring you to judgment. The Lord Jesus volunteered to leave from heaven to come down to where we are. Look here at verse 7. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. The one who eats your bread will set a trap for you. Edom was deceived By enemies, Jesus decisively knew that Judas, this one that ate at the very same table as him, would betray him. Everyone scatters. Edom's going to lose their warriors. Jesus shared that same fate. Peter, who was willing to cut off a guy's ear, Cussed out a little girl because she had screenshots of him with Jesus. Verse 11 says this. Edom betrayed 
Jesus or Edom betrayed Israel to a group of folks that cast lots for them. Jesus was betrayed to a group of people that cast lots for his clothes. Verse 16, God is going to force Edom and all the nations to drink down this cup. God's going to hold them back down as a righteous judge and pour this righteous cup of wrath down their throat. Jesus in a garden wrestled with God, but willingly took the cup and drank it for all of us. I, I desperately want y'all to see what takes place here, especially as we talk about the righteous judgment of God. God is not a judge who is constrained by some law outside of himself. We tend to think sometimes it's like God is like a judge who has to send his kids to jail. And if there was anything that he could do, he would. But his hands are tied. He's constrained. And so with tears in his eyes, he sends them off to jail. That's not true. I, I say that because of this. If there was anything outside of God that constrained him, that would be supreme and not God himself. God is not a teary-eyed judge, apologetic. God is a righteous judge saying this is right and it's the way that things should be. That's a beauty. That's a perfection that gives us great comfort. And out of his goodness, God chooses to sacrifice himself for us. Goodness without justice is no goodness at all. A goodness that's devoid of justice is hypocrisy. And there is no hypocrisy in God. Out of his goodness, justice is not violated. It's satisfied. God's justice and mercy meet at the cross. Jesus is our Mount Zion. Mercy doesn't become effective until justice does its actual work. And this is why we praise Jesus. Jesus is that bridge towards our great God. It's only through Jesus that we can invite God's judgment to set things right in the world and not get caught up in the cleansing hurricane that he brings. God's people, though now oppressed, are never overlooked. God has a plan to set things right. God intervenes. God restores. And look here how it ends. Verse 21. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau right here. But the kingdom will be the Lord's. Takeaways. Here's three takeaways that I want us to get from here. One, believing that God is actually going to set things right one day, the first thing that it does for us is it calms you and I in our quest for revenge. Here's what I mean by that. This story is not God's going to take the oppressed and he's going to give them power. God's going to take the oppressed and he's going to set them free. But God is going to establish his own kingdom. It's not justice for those of us that have been oppressed or have felt just the weight of what our world does 
to now say, well, what's fair is I want my turn in power. That's not what we're after. We're not after building up our own kingdoms. Those of us that are Christians, we're not after people that are a part of our same church feeling as bad as we did. What we're after is a unified kingdom with perfect justice with a ruler who has a heart that can't be corrupted at all. We don't want people to feel just as bad as we did. We never want them to feel the very same pain that we did. And so for a God that sacrifices himself for his enemies, you and I show that we've put our trust in him by the way that our hearts are calmed in our quest for revenge. It doesn't mean that we don't fight for injustice. It does mean that uh, vengeance is an item that's not on our menu. Vengeance is on God's. God's going to take care of things. God's going to set things right. You and I aren't to establish revenge, much less be vindictive. What a blessing that we have. Those of us that have felt the thumb of our society, our culture, even representatives of our faith that have bared down on us for us to rise up, not with a call towards y'all need to feel how we feel, but come and be a part. Let's together go and enjoy the freedom and forgiveness that's found in the Lord Jesus. It Comforts us in our revenge, calms us in our revenge. Two, it comforts us in our resentment. Longing to be in power, those that have been powerless, longing to be in power um, is, is deceptive because at best our hearts feel as if If I was in power, if I was in charge, if we had things set up, there's no way that we would do what was wrong here. And you look at the story of Israel through the whole Bible, and you see a community of people that were enslaved for 400 years. As soon as they go into the promised land, do you know one of the first things that they do? They enslave people. Pride and power is corrupting. So you and I guard our hearts against it. And we don't long to be on top. We long to find a place where Christ is on top. And we all can be uh, in submission to him together. And lastly, what this book does is it cautions us against the dangers of unrepentance. The dangers of type casting the God of the Bible as a God merely of love and forgiveness and mercy. There's a guy that says this, the vague hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly drug for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all types of sin while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unregarded. I say all of this to say, one of the most amazing gifts that God has provided is his patience. 